check out my new book, Coping Courageously, a heart-centered guide for navigating a loved one's illness without losing yourself. It's appropriate for you as a clinician, for your patients, and for anyone you know who has a seriously ill loved one or an aging parent. Check it out and tell a friend. Welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast, where we help physicians and other clinicians master the art of integrative symptom management so they can wholeheartedly care for themselves as they expertly care for their patients. Welcome to the Integrative Palliative Podcast. I'm Dr. Delia Caramonti. Today, we're going to talk about how to help families cope courageously when they're going through a family illness. I have had so many friends recently share with me how incredibly stressed out they are because their parents are getting older and mom won't take her medicines. And I really think dad should move to an assisted living, but he won't do it. Or I tell them to drink more water or they have to eat better, healthier food and they won't do it. And there's so much angst that I see in friends who are dealing with a really difficult situation of an aging and declining parent. Now, if a parent has dementia, of course, you have to take over. But I'm talking even about parents who are completely cognitively intact, maybe cranky, maybe difficult to deal with, but not people with dementia. That's not what I'm talking about. And it is stressing people out so much trying to control the uncontrollable. And the saddest thing for me to see, in addition to my friends being stressed out, but in addition to that, is that it's fracturing relationships right at the time when someone's life is coming closer to the end. It is fracturing relationships because the kids are being super bossy and the parents are being really resistant. And all of a sudden, everybody's mad at each other. And That just breaks my heart because our time on this planet is limited. And if you have time with a parent that you're connected to, we really want to help people figure out how not to mess that up. And a similar sort of thing happens when someone is dealing with a family member who is very ill, a younger person perhaps, or someone who's not just declining, but has cancer or ALS or or other really difficult diseases. And when I was practicing integrative palliative medicine, I saw that there were certain ways of being that helped families manage their stress better, stay connected, cope with really difficult situations better. And then there were some ways of being that just made the whole thing a disaster. So it's because of that that I wrote a book, Coping Courageously, A Heart-Centered Guide for Navigating a Loved One's Illness Without Losing Yourself. And that book is coming out next month in about two weeks. I'm so excited. But for today, I wanted to take some of the ideas from that book and just share them because we as clinicians, really part of our job is to help families cope courageously. So that's what we're going to talk about today. So there's three big pieces. This is the three sections of the book, and then we'll talk about the the little parts inside each section. So the big three are when we're helping somebody, a family, go through a serious illness or decline, we want to help them navigate the situation. That's generally what we're good at. We want to help them grow and build resilience, and we want to help them with connection. And that's the part that I think sometimes gets lost the most. So, okay, so how do we help them navigate the situation? This is the one we're most comfortable with. We're helping them figure out what medicines to take and what specialists to see and what procedures they should have. Of course, we should keep doing all of those things. But there's a couple other things I want to add to our toolkit. The first one is that we really need to give people permission 
to get help way sooner than they think they need help. That is probably one of the most consistent things that I saw when I was caring for families is that families are holding on by their fingernails, not getting help, thinking, I can still do it. I'm okay. I can do it. But really, we want to tell them, no, everybody gets help too late. Please get help. And that could mean hiring help to help give care to your loved one or stay with your loved one if they have dementia, for example, or are very sick when you go out. That could mean help cleaning the house, help doing the yard work, a therapist. It could mean help getting your other tasks off your plate so that you have more energy to help care for the loved ones. So, you know, having people drive your kids to school, et cetera. So just the concept of whatever feels hard, get help for it now, not later. We we need to give people permission to do that. I think we need to validate for them that this is going to be messy. It's just messy. People try so hard to do it right to get the best doctors, to make the best decisions, to get the best things in the house to help. They just want to do it right because they love their person and they're trying to fix an unfixable situation. So I think we need to just say right up front, it's going to be messy. And there's nothing you can do to make it be not messy. So all that wonderful energy that you're putting is great to help it be better. But no matter how hard you try, it's going to be messy because that's just the nature of the beast, the nature of illness. And it's okay because it's like that for everybody. I think it's important to validate that because otherwise people feel like they are failing or they're not doing it right or they they you know they run faster and faster and faster to try to fix all of these crazy details. And I think it's helpful just to say, you know what, it's this just messy. It's sort of like when you come home with a brand new baby. If someone is home with a brand new baby and they're thinking, I'm still going to cook organic meals every night and my house is going to be perfectly clean and I'm going to get eight hours of sleep. Yeah, you won't. You won't because that's just the nature of being home with a brand new baby. And so don't beat yourself up if that's not what's happening because that's not what's going to happen. So I think it's important to validate that for people. They often don't intrinsically know this. They think other people are doing it better or if they just did something different, it would be better. So sometimes giving them the reassurance that the way it feels is kind of the way it's going to feel sometimes allows people to relax a little bit. In terms of practical things, we absolutely want to help them fill out an advanced directive. And if your patients have an advanced directive and they say, oh yeah, I did that at my lawyer's office, I strongly recommend that you ask them to bring it in so you can review it with them. Make sure that it accurately reflects their goals. There's a story in in the book, Coping Courageously, about a son who was making really great decisions for his elderly mom who had just had a stroke. He agreed to hospice and that was the right thing for him and, and for what he believed she would want. And then he found her advanced directive, which had all kinds of instructions with no flexibility that he thought were totally counter to what she would have wanted, but the hospital felt obligated to follow it because it was her advanced directive. She had done it in her lawyer's office, just check, check, check boxes, and it wasn't really thoughtfully done. And because of that, she suffered, her son suffered, even the healthcare team suffered because we knew that it was wrong, but the legal part of the hospital said we had to follow it. So check out your patient's advanced directives and make sure that they match what the person would want. We want to help the family and the patient choose a path that matches the patient's values. And so that could go in either direction, right? I'm a palliative care doctor. You'd think I'd want everyone to be DNR, but no. Sometimes when we would do palliative consults, we would go in and the team would have consulted us to say, 
make the person DNR, which of course is not for us to do. But we would often come out and say, no, they actually want to be more aggressive. Their goals are to live on this earth every single day, no matter what. And if that's the case, they should be full code. They should have all the aggressive care. So in this country at this time in the US, we don't really ration care. And so if a person wants to have aggressive care, even if they have an end of life condition, for the most part, they have that option. So we should help them figure out what are the patient's values, match that with the medical reality and help them come to a plan that is not what we think should happen, but what matches the patient's values. And in that, we should help them create an imperfect plan. And there's a chapter in the book called Create an Imperfect Plan. And I think that's important because people try to create the perfect plan and illness is so crazy and unpredictable. There are no perfect plans and it's filled with people the patient, the family members, the siblings, who are all stressed out, who are all imperfect people to begin with, as we all are. And so knowing from the beginning that this will be an imperfect plan and having some grace to get the best that we can from everybody, but not torture everybody with an impossible standard, I think is really important. And then the last one that I think we should think about in the first section of helping the person navigate this tough situation, and this goes for us too, is we need to allow acceptance to build. And I want to share this one because a little bit I'm talking to us, the clinicians here, because sometimes we will come in and say, you know, the chemo is not working and it seems like hospice might be an appropriate thing to think about. Can we talk about that? And the patient or family might be furious and they might yell at us and they might kick us out of the room. And I think it's important for us to realize that acceptance has to build. So we didn't do anything wrong if that happens. It's just that acceptance starts somewhere and often there's resistance to it and that's okay. So it doesn't mean we did anything wrong. It doesn't mean, oh, the family, you know, was being unreasonable and won't accept anything. It just means acceptance is a process. It has to start somewhere. Sometimes there's anger in the beginning and that's okay. And that we can walk this road with the family and the patient as their acceptance grows to whatever it is that they're dealing with. So for the second section, which is grow and build resilience, one of the most important things that relates to some of what I said before is that we really should help people learn to control what they can and let go of the rest. And we should practice that too. Control what you can and let go of the rest. Because trying to control the uncontrollable makes people nuts and stressed and exhausted and overwhelmed and frustrated and sad and it's all around yuck. Trying to control the uncontrollable is crazy and it is not good anywhere. So we have to try to figure out in the family and patient has to try to figure out what is controllable. Control that and let go of the rest. And so a silly everyday example is think about driving a car. So we know that driving a car is dangerous And we also know there are things that you can control that can make it less so. So you can drive the speed limit, you can wear your seatbelt, you can not text, you can pay attention to the road, you can not drink while you're driving. These are all things that you can control to make it safer to drive. So do these things because those are things we can control. But here's what you can't control if someone's going to slam into you. So imagine if you're driving and you've put on your seatbelt and you're not drinking, but you're thinking the whole time, oh my God, what if I crash? 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 So that doesn't make you less likely to crash, maybe even more likely, but it definitely reduces your well-being. 
right? It stresses you out. It's physiologically not good for you. You'll be exhausted by the time you get wherever you're going. So we generally do a pretty good idea in driving, most of us, in controlling what we can and letting go of the rest. So we put our seatbelt on. We don't drink and drive. We don't text. Hopefully we're watching the road. We're watching the speed limit. And then we think about other things, right? We don't think about car crashes. So we control what we can and we let go of the rest. And the same is helpful when people are dealing with illness. So go to your doctor's appointments, get your chemo, take your medicines, call me if you get a fever, but then don't spend, if possible, the whole time perseverating about all the terrible things that could happen. So control what you can and let go of the rest. Now, easy for us to say, hard for people to do, but that concept is important in your counseling of the patient. Bring it in where it seems like the patient's or family is open to hearing it, and then bring it up again other times in the future. It's a really important concept. Also, you should practice it, as I do. One of the best ways to do that is this idea of focusing on the now. And there have been other podcast episodes on that. I'll do some in the future. There's a chapter in the book about this too. But this idea is that we can only focus our attention in one place at a time. It could be somewhere in the past, it could be somewhere in the future, or it could be literally right now. Like right now you're listening to a podcast. That's your right now. When we practice noticing where our mind goes, so if it's in the past, we try to bring it back to the now. If it goes into the future of, oh no, what if the scan is bad? We try to bring it back to the now, meaning I'm cooking. What do I smell? What do I see? What do I hear? I'm taking a walk. Look at the birds. What does that tree look like? What colors do I see? What are the crunching sounds under my feet? How does it feel when my feet hit the ground? When you focus your attention on the literal now, you can't be worrying about what could happen in the future or perseverating about what happened in the past. So that's really the tool for letting go of the rest, right? That idea is what can I control? Let me control that. And then let me focus my attention in the now as much as I possibly can. We also want to help people learn to face the darkness, meaning allow their feelings, allow their sadness, see sadness as a normal part of the human experience. With the caveat that we also need to identify and treat depression, that's treat depression in the patient. Even in people close to the end of life, we still can treat depression and it's important to do that. If they have time, we can use an SSRI or SNRI. If not, if they don't have much time, we can even use Ritalin to elevate mood. So treating depression in the patient and in the family is extremely important. Don't just assume, well, they're, of course, their loved one's dying. Of course, they're, they're blue. We need to figure out, is that blue sadness, which is normal and we should validate that? Or is that depression, which we should treat? We want to help our families see that they can control their responses even when they can't control the situation. That's huge, 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 huge for well-being when you're dealing with something tough. So even if your dad is infuriating you because he's not doing the things that he should be doing and he's not getting exercise like he should or eating healthy like he should, he's not calling you like he should, even if that's happening and it's it shouldn't be happening, right? You're right. He should eat better. He should drink more water. He should call you. He should exercise. But if he has the ability to make his own decisions, he actually has the right to make those decisions, even if they're what we might see as bad decisions. He has the right to make them. And we can't change him, right? We, we know we can't change other people. But who can we change? We can change us. So we can work 
on our responses to what's happening. Now, of course, I'm not saying don't try to help your family members, right? Like, tell them once, tell them twice, tell them three times, help buy a smoothie maker, you know, help say, do you want me to get food delivered to you? There are things that we can offer. But if ultimately, the loved one rejects our offers, and they are able to make those decisions for themselves, then we have to back off. That goes back to control what you can and let go of the rest. We have to back off then we work on our own responses. Because the more agitated, upset, stressed out, angry we get, the more we fracture our relationship, just at a time when relationship is really important. And part of how we get the energy to do that, to control our own responses, is by actively filling up our own cup. Because if we are depleted, hard things are harder, including really frustrating family members who are not doing what we think that they should do. So we need to keep our own cup full. There's a whole chapter in the book on that and how to do that so that we have the energy and the empathy to say, okay, I wish that mom would do things in this way, but I see that you know I've tried and that's not going to happen and she does have the right to make her own decisions. So I'm going to work on my own responses use my calming tools, go into the bathroom, put water on my face, take 10 deep breaths, go for a run, call somebody, write in my journal, and I'm going to prioritize the relationship because I know that my time with my loved one is short. But we can't do that when we are totally bone dry because everything then feels like a catastrophe. So part of learning to control the responses is learning to fill up your cup. So obviously, you're not having all these discussions in one day. But these are things to keep in mind as you're counseling your families over time. Pull out the things that are most appropriate for the conversation that you're having during that visit. And then number three is to connect authentically. So illness sometimes, tragically, in my opinion, sends everybody to their own corners. So just when your time together is growing short, and it is really important to connect and be together and appreciate each other and spend time together. Just then is often when people are cranky with each other because they're all stressed out. They're trying to control each other. They're bone dry. They're depleted. Also, because they're afraid to have difficult conversations. And so instead of having them, they just all hide in the corner or watch TV or put their nose in their phones. So part of what we can teach people to do is to master these courageous conversations, things like talking about code status, should dad still be driving? Should mom still be living alone? What about hospice? We need to give people the tools, even the words to have these conversations with their loved ones so that they don't put their head in the sand and avoid talking to their loved ones because they know they have these big conversations they should have, but they're afraid to do it. We also want to help people see the difference between gratitude and toxic positivity. This is hugely important. So positive thinking in terms of looking for the things in the hard stuff that are positive, looking for gratitude, call that positive reframing, that's a good thing to do. But trying to whitewash difficult things and say, everybody has to be positive all the time, that's not good. That's not healthy. And it isolates people, particularly if the patient themselves is saying, hey, you know, what if the chemo doesn't work? If the whole family jumps on them and says, don't say that, don't say that, oh my gosh, daddy, don't talk that way, you can't talk that way, you have to be positive. 
all that does is drive the patient's difficult feelings underground and it leaves them lonely with those feelings. So families need to be shown and taught how to allow their loved ones to have tough feelings and to wrestle with difficult ideas without trying to whitewash it with with toxic fake positivity. But at the same time, we don't want to say, but don't be positive. What we want to teach them is positive reframing, but not toxic positivity. I think the idea of forgiveness is important when we're talking about end of life, because sometimes people have had difficult relationships with their relatives throughout their life. And this can become really fraught if they're helping their loved one as they are progressing in an illness or as the end of their life is coming closer. So in the book, I talk about flirting with forgiveness, because I think the the talk around forgiveness can have a toxic positivity vibe if we're not careful. You know, somebody might have had a really difficult relationship with their father throughout their life, and then people will say to them, well, he's dying, though, you have to forgive him. And that can feel disingenuous, and it can feel unsupportive to the person themselves. So this idea of flirting with forgiveness, can can you fully forgive someone for whatever has happened? That's wonderful if you can do that. That's fantastic. But it's okay to play with it. And it's even okay to turn the forgiveness towards yourself and work on forgiving yourself. So there's a whole chapter in the book, Coping Courageously, about this idea of how do we manage forgiveness when we've had a difficult relationship with someone, but they're now coming to the end of their life. And then I think it can be really meaningful to have conversations with families about legacy projects, or I often call them love projects. This is one of the reasons that it's great for people to accept and talk about early on if their disease is progressing so that they still feel well enough to do a love project if they want to. And these could be one of a million different kinds of things. It could be recording your stories. It could be a journal of stories or a journal of instructions. It could be an art piece. It could be a quilt. It could be a photo album. It could be a song. It could be anything. It doesn't matter at all. It could be a handprint or a footprint. It could be just a video message. But sometimes people want to do something for the people that are left. In the book, I talk about one of my patients who made boxes for her eight grandchildren. She decorated each box differently specific for that child and filled it with things that had been meaningful for the two of them. She showed me pictures. They were beautiful. And it was so meaningful for her to do it. And I'm sure it was meaningful for her grandchildren to receive them. Now, the one really important thing if you're counseling patients about this is you can say, look, If everything works out and you live another 20 years, fantastic. This will be a great holiday gift for your loved one. Like you don't have to wait until you know for sure that you will be dying in order to do a love project because sometimes then it's too late. So do it now. I've done some things like this for my own kids actually already. Do it now. Why not? It's always better to feel better, to have the time to think about it, to really engage in this loving, connected experience of creating something that you'll leave for someone when you're gone. Now, I want to address the one thing that you might be worried about, which is, are you out of your mind? How do I have time to talk about all these things? I don't have any time with my patients. I I get that, 100% get how limited time is with patients. But what I would say is, if you have all of these things in the back of your head, if you remember that these are tools that you can pull out of your toolbox at any time, you can bring out one of them and have a two-minute conversation when it's the right time. So I would really encourage you not to shy away from supporting families in this way just because you're worried, oh, it'll take too much time, so I won't even do it at all. That's sort of like, I don't have time to exercise for 45 minutes, so I'll just sit on the couch. Five minutes walking up and down the stairs is better than nothing. 
And if you can spend two minutes just telling the family, you know what, this process is messy. It's messy for everybody. It's going to be messy for you too. And that's okay. Let me encourage you to control all the things that you can and then let go of the things that you can't control. It will help make a difficult situation easier. Just say that. You have time to say that. So I would encourage you to read the book, Coping Courageously, and pick out the things that fit into your way of counseling, maybe even write in the back of the book some phrases that you might say so that you start to incorporate this kind of counseling with your patients if you're not doing it already. All right. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. It really does help me if you leave a review or if you share with a colleague who you think might be interested in the podcast. I'd love to spread the word of this wholehearted, integrative, palliative approach to caring for people with serious illness. Thanks for being here. I hope you have a wonderful week and I'll see you next Thursday. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by the Integrative Palliative Institute. Visit our website, integrativepalliative.com. There you can access physician and clinician training, well-being coaching, free downloads and other cool stuff. And feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn and share your favorite episode with a friend.